I miss my wife. <laughs> uh, I always forget about this. Uh, I'm a person of habit. Um, it was, it's a joy to be here. I, I got to be here with you for the first two months of the year, and now to come back is really uh, a great joy and privilege, so I thank you for this opportunity. Um, sadly, my wife is not here today again. I think this is the third time where we've had some event that has happened. We planned to have Christmas in Bowie with all my kids, and uh, my youngest daughter tore her ACL back in October, so her surgery was December 14th, so my wife flew down on the 13th to take care of her. She'll be back January 8th. I flew down with my youngest son on the 20th, so it's been a lot of trips to the airport. Had a wonderful time in Memphis, and they're still there, uh, but I had the privilege of coming back here, so I had to come back uh, today. So it is sad she's not here, but I'm glad she's serving my daughter. So let me, uh, let me pray for our time in the Word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would <clears throat> do what we cannot do, and that is to illuminate. Even as your children were dependent upon the Holy Spirit to uh, help us to, un- to, to enable us to understand it rightly. So we ask now that you would do that work as we consider your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, please turn to the letter to the Hebrews, uh, chapter 3, and I will read from verse 7 all the way through to uh, Hebrews 4.16. Let us hear the word of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation And said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence Firm to the end, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he says, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter, because of disobedience, he, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, In the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Actually, I'm going to, fin- I'm going to stop there. We're going to uh, consider this last part of this section as well next week, Lord willing. But um, so we have this, uh, this letter here. I've always had interest in the letter to the Hebrews, even as a young Christian. And yet it's probably one of those letters that I come to trembling. There's so many severe and grave warnings uh, that I was almost afraid to deal with it and was concerned that uh, uh, I might uh, be undone by it. And yet all Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture is for us, for our good, for our good as God's people. We need to hear all of God's Word, uh, not just the ones that seem more encouraging on the surface uh, than others. But we need to hear these things. And this uh, letter is written to a people who are not doing very well in the faith. They are weary. They've suffered for the sake of Christ. They've suffered loss for the sake of Christ. And in some ways, maybe they're like you and I are today with the COVID, that uh, we're weary. We're weary of wearing masks. We're weary of all the upheaval evil in our, uh, in our society and also in the church. I don't know what it's been like for you all, but the whole matter of masks and vaccinations and all those things have really caused a division in the church. And it should not, but it seems to have done so. Uh, but maybe you're just weary. You're just weary. Maybe you've had COVID. I've had friends get COVID. A friend of Mark and mine has got COVID. I happened to FaceTime with him over, over the phone. I'm looking at him. I think, man, he looks kind of thin in the face. He's in great shape. And turned out he said he was in the hospital for a week. He had COVID. He lost 20 pounds and had blood clots. So uh, maybe it's been a very weary year for you. What's been weary for these people as well. And in some ways, this COVID is a blessing to us. Because it makes us reevaluate where our foundations are. Are they in Christ or have we been having false hopes? And so in, in, in many ways, we're just like this audience. Uh, we don't know who the, the writer is. I remember debating with Palmer Robertson. That was a bad idea over who, was, uh, who the writer was. I kept saying it was Paul. It was Paul. It was Paul. And he persuaded me it wasn't. And we really don't know who it, who it is. Well, we do know that the hearers knew who he was as we read the letter, and they knew that he had the authority to write this letter. And so we, too, are sitting under this letter. Uh, a very simple way to describe the audience to which this letter is written comes from Dennis Johnson. He's a professor emeritus from Westminster Seminary, California, and he says this regarding this letter. The addressees began their pilgrimage of faith well when enlightened by the gospel, Enduring suffering and caring for other, other sufferers for Jesus' sake. At the same time, at the time of the writing, however, some were in danger not only of abandoning the Christian gathering, but also of renouncing their confession of trust in Christ and his atoning blood. The sermon argues throughout that Jesus and his redemptive work surpass and replace the means of atonement and access to God, the sanctuary and sacrifices commanded in the law given to Moses. 
This argument seems to imply that the hearers were inclined to look to the institutions of Judaism for assurance of God's forgiveness, as well as for relief and persecution. And throughout this letter, our, our, our writer will expound upon the person and work of Christ, but then he'll stop and he'll criticize his hearers for some reason or another. And it's a very sad evaluation that he gives them because uh, they're, they're behind. They're retarded in their growth as children of God. Now, in any endeavor we have, whether it's professionally or we, our children's education, we never want them to be behind. And yet that's exactly what's going on here. And first and foremost, it shows us that the Christian life is not a static life. Right now, we could do a cross-section of where our life is in Christ. Hopefully, it's on the upswing. Hopefully, we're growing in Christ. Hopefully, we're uh, growing in greater love for Christ and devotion to Christ. But it may be the opposite. This might be a difficult time, and you're starting to regress in some sense. But there's no staticness in the Christian life. It's either you're moving forward or backwards. And some of these people were moving backwards. It was even to such a degree, the writer tells us, that by now, some of them should have been teachers. Some of them should have been teachers. That's, that's a very sad commentary. Even the church suffered because these people were not stepping up and doing what they were called to. And yet I think if we consider this, we, we need to reflect on our own lives. Are we living up to the calling that God has for us? Are we moving on in the faith? Maybe some of you are called to be officers that are not officers. I've even, have to, I've even been looking backwards to the next generation, to look for the next set of officers. I told one of my sons, I said, hey, you might be an elder someday. You know? And so we don't, want to, we don't want to go backwards. We want to move forwards, and yet we see this, this going backwards here in these people. Very, very sad that dishonors Christ, and it's, uh, they're not using the talents that the Lord has given them. And so I want to look at this passage under... Uh, three points today. It's titled God's Lesson for Today. And the first point will be learn the lesson. Learn the lesson. That's in verses 3, 7 to 19. And then secondly, understand the rest. Understand the rest. And that's in verses 4, 1 to 10. And then finally, heed the word. Verses 4, 11 to 13. Heed the word. Verses 4, 11 to 13. So first, let's learn the lesson. We have this, this word that comes from Psalm 95, and it starts off in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, well, later the writer will say it was David that wrote this, but he says here it's the Holy Spirit, and the answer is it's both. The human writer was David, and David spoke this psalm, and yet behind it, of course, is the Holy Spirit as behind of all the scriptures. And so now the writer to the Hebrews is applying this psalm to his current hearers, the, the audience of this letter, he says, today, when you, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. And so the Holy Spirit has given this great warning, not just to uh, the audience of the Hebrews, but also to us as well, that today, right now, and really at every moment of our lives, we're never to harden our heart towards the word of God. They had, these people had hardened their hearts, and it was, it was a great uh, danger for them. And we see that there's this, this situation that's going out through the history of the Israelites where they would harden their hearts. In Exodus 17, 1 to 7, there was a lack of water. Did they look to the Lord for help and trust him? No. They grumbled and they, they quarreled. 
and we're, we're not trusting the Lord. In Numbers 14, 1 to 38, uh, they, they, when the spies went out to look at the land, and they came back with a report. Only two came back with a faithful report, and the other said, no, we can't do it. And the people start to murmur and are grumbling and want to go back. And so it was a great, great sad situation where they would not trust the Lord. They would not trust the Lord. They had seen all these incredible, mighty acts with their own eyes. You know, I think in our own time in the history of redemption, we tend to think that if we see a miracle, it's going to make us believe. And yet they saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And it did them no good. Because they did not trust in the Lord of the miracle. Think about this. They were in slavery in Egypt. Incredible bondage. They were despondent that so much that when they heard the promises, they didn't believe it. Because they were so despondent. Their slavery was so grievous. And yet God pulls them out of that. And he shows them the plagues. He shows his power over Egypt and Pharaoh. They see the dead bodies in the water after God destroys Egypt. They see him time after time after time doing wonderful and marvelous things. You would think they would get the lesson. And yet they don't. They don't get it. And so they have this unbelief. They don't trust the Lord, even though he had shown and demonstrated his kindness. And there's there's an application right now. Where's your heart in light of the the miracles and the provision and goodness of the Lord and the word? But secondly, you have your own story if you're a believer. You have a story of how the Lord brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I grew up in an unbelieving home. It was a wonderful unbelieving home for an unbelieving home. But uh, I I almost never went to a church. I didn't know who Jesus Christ was until high school. And he brought me out of darkness into his marvelous light. And and I'm sure you all have stories of a similar nature. And from there on, you can see how the Lord caused you to grow and be enlightened by the word. And you grew in your Christian faith. And you have things you could document over the course of your life. Where God had provided. You were in a a great strait. And you called out to the Lord. And he provided. But we're not to be like the people of Israel. We're not to harden our hearts. In light of these tender mercies. Fortunately when I was a young Christian. This one. At the time sadly. this, this, This same person turned away from the Lord. But he encouraged me to keep a journal. And so for about 45 years now, I've kept a journal where I write down things I'm grateful for. Because I'm weak and I forget, just like the Israelites. But I don't want to forget. (laughs) So I keep a journal where I write down the things I'm grateful for. Sometimes they're small things like a parking spot or something like that, maybe. Sometimes maybe it's some other major provision. This whole year has been a glorious year for me. I got to serve here in the first two months, which was the most wonderful time of my life. And then I thought, what's next? And I get this six and a half month stint down in Virginia preaching. Most wonderful time of my life. And it's like, what's, rest for the last, what's, what's left for the rest of the year? And the Lord provides a paid internship in my home church. And I, I've probably preached more this year than the average associate pastor. And I didn't write any one of those scripts. It was just the Lord's kindness. It was so obvious to me over and over again. It wasn't that I... You know, hopefully I was faithful to some degree. It was just the Lord's kindness in providing all these things. So that 2001 is the greatest year of my life in Christ. 
It just edged out 2020, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. Now, I know I don't, I'm not like many of you where you have to go to work and have to deal with Zoom and all those things, but, um, but the Lord is providing even in the midst of these things, and we need to keep a record. So I would just encourage you. Do you have some way of remembering what the Lord has done? Now, I'll, I, I'll admit, I almost never go back to those. I have papers all over my house. I started off with journals, started going by five, uh, by, five by seven uh, yellow pieces of paper uh, pads and just writing it. Because I knew if I didn't do this, I'd forget. And so at the end of the day, I try to look back and to say, is there something I was really thankful for, something, some provision? Again, it could be simple or it could be major. Um, but it's a way of me forcing me to fulfill Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord and forget not all of his benefits. You know, we're, we're so prone to be like the Israelites. Uh, by God's kind providence, I've had a lot of time to spend reading the word and particularly uh, reading the Old Testament. And I find myself more relating with the sins of the, of the people of God in the Old Testament than not. And sometimes I have to stop and say, Lord, please keep me from this sin. At the, but at the, at the same time, though, I'm so encouraged by the Lord's kindnesses. His kindnesses to mankind in creating this world, this beautiful world, where everything we've ever enjoyed, every good thing is from his hand. Everything that... God did for Israel, providing food in the wilderness. Day to day, they could do certain things with it, you know, with the manna. It even says at one point, I can't remember where it was, he says he went ahead of them to find a place for them to camp. It reminds me of the Lord Jesus who's going before us to prepare a place for us. His his tender mercies, his kindnesses over and over again. They're like coming off the page, and I say, I have to say to myself, Steve, what are you, do- what are you doing with your- the Lord's kindnesses? What are you doing with them? Are you aware of that? Do you trust Him more? I will say that by God's grace, He's gotten through my hard heart, where it's like I have no idea what's next. <laughs> I have no idea, but it's just like, well, you know, He's kind. We'll just wait and see. We'll just wait and see. But that only comes because He's been so kind. He's been so forbearing. And yet some people, not all of them, in Israel didn't trust the Lord. After seeing all these tender mercies, all these evidences of his love. And the same thing's true for the hearers in our, in our uh, passage today. They, they, they were going backwards. Their thinking was becoming muddled. They were becoming dull. And so let me encourage you to write them down. You know, you can always go back and backlog them. <laughs> you can think about all the things the Lord has done. I'm sure there's some that just really stand out in your mind. But that's, that's the Lord's Ebenezer's in your life. And they just help you. It, and it's such a, <laughs> this is a secondary thing, but it's such a stabilizing thing. You know, you realize, oh yeah, I was here before. I was anxious before. I was, I was in need before, and the Lord provided so I should trust him now. I should trust him. And the thing, the thing is so amazing is how he provides in ways you don't expect. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And so we shouldn't be surprised if he just provides an answer somewhere we didn't expect. 
You know, we, the fall has so affected us that we're always trying to be in control. We think we can be in control. And yet we were never made to be autonomous from our good creator and now our good Lord. We're here to bring glory to him. We're made for his glory. All things were made through him and for him, even in creation. But now he's redeemed us that we might truly be his with new hearts that want to start to do that. But when we think about our lives, we have our callings, we have our temporal callings that are from the Lord, but it's all for his glory. It's not for our glory's sake. We share in his glory, but it's for his glory. You know, if you can think of an arm detached from a body, it's a pretty gruesome sight, but that's what the fall did. It was man's attempt to be autonomous, to rebel against his good creator, to be wiser than his creator. And those effects still linger in us. They're still being transformed by God's spirit in us. So that we're not rebelling so much, but we, we, we more and more submit to his wonderful lordship, his wise lordship. As, as Cliff was alluding to with children, we're just like the children. You know? You ever put your hand out for a child, you're about to cross the street and they go, <laughs> do this, they, they try to wipe you off. You know, it's like, this is for your safety. This is for your good. But I find I do that too. You know, I hear these, I read these things in a word, it's like, Duh. <laughs> you need to submit. And, but, but by God's grace, it's being overturned and overruled. As we see how deep our sin is, it's not just our actions. It's not just our words. It's not just our thoughts. It's our affections, our very affections. And even there, God starts to transform us. Okay, I'm going to confess some more sins. <laughs> You know, when my wife and I got married, hopefully I wasn't a horrible person. It's almost 40 years now, Lord willing, 40 years in May. But by God's grace, I'm, I'm starting to be more proactive in loving her. You know, anticipating things and trying to, to love her more proactively. That's just God's grace. Because I'm as selfish as anybody else. But that's what the transforming grace of God does. It makes us want to do what God wants us to do. For husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That glorious calling that we have as husbands. And so we need to take these words to heart. That our hearts are not hardened. God's word is always right. It's always perfect. It's always good. But we see that rebellion in our hearts, that stubbornness. It just won't submit like we should. It's very sad. This audience is so dull. He calls them dull eventually. That as he, he, he has to explain to them who these were that rebelled in the wilderness. In, in verses 16 to 18, it's almost like the shorter catechism with questions and answers. Verse 16, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Answer, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Question 17, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Answer, Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? I've wondered if he had to do it that way because they were so dull, they weren't able to grasp what he was saying. So he had to really talk very childlike with them, very clearly, very pointedly. They should have understood this story already, but they didn't. So he has to go through and identify, look, 
You want to go backwards to the, the Levitical priesthood? You want to go back to all those things? You know, a lot of people never made it to the promised land, that temporal promised land. And then we see the reason in verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief. They'd seen all these miracles, all these wonders, and they still didn't believe. And so we need to realize miracles aren't going to do it. You know, people, some, some branches of the church are always talking about miracles. And it's like, miracles won't do it. Judas saw miracles. Men and women in the wilderness saw miracles. But they didn't trust the Lord. And so we need to, to realize that unbelief, no matter how small, is dangerous. Unbelief is really saying you're a liar, God. Isn't that what our forefather, our, 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 our forefather did? Adam and Eve? Isn't that what they did? God said, in the day that you will eat of this, you will surely die. Very clear, very pointed. In the light of that beautiful created order they were enjoying, and the tempter comes and says, did God say? Starts to try to muddy the waters. Did God say? The answer should have been, yes, he did say. Yes, he did say. And he never lies. He's always good. And then the evil one says, you shall surely not die. A blatant contradiction of God's words. And so we see that unbelief of any measure is contrary to what God's, God has said and his authority, his truthful word. And when you don't believe God, you start to be anxious and you start to devise your own ways of doing things. And in the end, it could lead to, to unbelief and falling away from the living God. Now, we in the Reformed community have heard, once saved, always saved. And that is absolutely true. If God has saved you, you are always saved. And yet what this writer is doing is shining a bright light, even on the children of God, on the measure of unbelief. Some people are unbelieving in this midst, probably. Just like, in some sense, in every church, there's some unbelievers, even those who think they might be believers. That's not to trouble you, but it's to cause you to look at your roots. Are you really trusting in Christ or have you been deceived and you've trusted in your own efforts and just are glad, you know, it's a good thing to be a Christian, like it's good to be wealthy or something else. But as, as we heard that question earlier, is your only hope in life and in death, is it really Christ? Is it really what Christ has done? If you don't have that, you have nothing. It's so important. So this letter, as piercing as it is, as bright as it is, as we'll hear in a moment, it's only to to take away the dross of our lives as God's children. It's only to take away the dross to, to show where we haven't been trusting the Lord. And that process will continue on to our last breath. I trust that even in our last breath, no matter how long we live, we'll still be going through that process of the unbelief of our heart coming to light and needing to repent and to trust the Lord. So don't be surprised if there's uh, conviction as you read the word, whether wherever you are in the word, there should be conviction because we're not yet what we will be in glory, sinless. And yet, this process of sanctification continues on in this life.
And so one more application before we go to the next section is, what is it that's troubling you right now? Is there some health situation, a relational situation, or an unbelieving family member? It's to bring it to the Lord, to bring it into the light of his word, to look at the promises he's given. It's not to say he's going to give us everything that we want, because he is sovereign. He can change, he can do whatever he pleases, and it's all good. But we need to know where to go with our, our concerns. Another sin I'll confess. <laughs> I have a hard time sleeping. And I've been reading, you know, I've been studying the book of Hebrews for about a year now, particularly heavily, you know. And uh, <laughs> night after night I'm saying, man, I can't sleep. I can't sleep. I can't sleep. And it's like, Steve, have you asked the Lord <laughs> to help you? Have you asked the Lord to give you rest? I've been, this has been in my face all this time and I, 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 I hadn't even called on the Lord to help me. That'd be bad enough, but then a couple nights later, you know, I, I'm not sleeping, I'm not sleeping. Have you asked the Lord to help you? Have you asked the Lord to help you? But those are just small indications of what's still going on. The, the most instinctual thing for us is creatures of God in need is to ask for help. And yet we're so slow to do so, or we go to the wrong sources. And so, whatever it is that's troubling us, you know, maybe you're concerned about financial matters, whatever, is to bring it into the light of the word of who God is. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? The answer is no. So hopefully we learn the lesson that we're not to harden our hearts, and yet there's a tendency to harden our hearts. And by God's grace, that will be overcome in greater measure time and time again. But the second point is to know the, to know the rest. To know the rest. Now, they were looking for rest in the wrong place. They thought there would be some safety in going backwards to the ways of Judaism. Now, if I understand it rightly, Christians were more persecuted or had different, more difficulty, those who professed Christ, uh, if you were Jewish or Gentile, than the Jews did. And they've been suffering, and maybe they're trying to get away from the suffering aspect of, of being a Christian, and you just can't. Jesus has told us that you will suffer just like I have, because you're not of the world any longer. And so suffering is going to be a normal part of life. And yet, I know sometimes suffering over a period of time can make you weary. And it really it will test your faith. And yet, they, look for the, they were looking for rest in the wrong place. Their, their thinking was so muddled. And so he starts to reason with them. He says, you know, you were, you're so big on, on Levitical priesthood. You're so big on Judaism. He said, you know, the promised land wasn't the rest in the first place. It was never meant to be the rest. It was a type of rest. It's true that God did give rest to the Israelites. We, we see this in Joshua 21, 43 to 45. So the Lord gave Israel, uh, so the Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give their, to their fathers, and they took possession of it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, in accordance with everything that He had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Everything came to pass. 
Now this is very sad. Not all of them entered the promised land. But God fulfilled his promise. There were a number who did. You know, the others fell in the wilderness. This is what our writer's telling us. It's interesting in this section as he talks about rest, you go from Moses to Joshua. And you, if you remember back, there was a lack of water. Israelites complained. God said, hit the rock once. Moses hits it twice. And he doesn't get to enter the promised land because he didn't treat God as holy. But that's not the last time that God gave his people rest. In 2 Samuel 7, 1, God gives rest to David. Now, when the king lived in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. We see it again with Solomon. He gives Solomon rest from his enemies. We see it again in 2 Chronicles 15, 15 with Asa. I think there's a number other, another, uh, there are other passages like that where God gives them rest, but it's a type. It's not the rest that God had always been talking about. The rest that he's been talking about, we see in verses 6, I'm sorry, in verses 3, 4, and 5. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has he is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Going down to verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. We hear the fulfillment of this, uh, or, or, or more on this, in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, 12 to 13. And again, there's this call for patient endurance in the midst of suffering. And it says this in verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. That all along there was a greater rest that all these other rests pointed to, just like all the types and signs that we have in the Old Testament were pointing to greater realities. And it was... It was for a, a people to enter the rest that God entered into when he had created the world and rested from his labors of creation. doesn't mean that God is not at work in providence or in salvation, but God rested from his works on the seventh day. And someone points out that whereas day one through six had an ending, back in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, the seventh day doesn't have an ending. It's an eternal rest. And all along, this is the rest that this was pointing to. That's why our writer can say today, as, as David said to those in his time, as our writer said to those in his time, and as we hear here today, we haven't entered that rest yet. The possibility of entering that rest still stands until the Lord comes. And then there will be true rest. There will be absolute, perfect rest. And that's what we're looking for. It's interesting, if you get to the, the 11th chapter of Hebrews later on in this writer's work, we have the, what's called the Hall of Fame of Faith. And I've spent a lot of time there over the last year, and I, I don't think we think the story ends the way we thought. Because some have these wonderful things. They, they, they have the, uh, received their dead back, you know, and things like that. They have children, but others were tortured, and they die. 
It's like, how do these things go together with faith? What is, what is that about? And what it is is that they fulfilled the calling that they had in this life. They fulfilled the calling that they had in this life. We don't know what, absolutely what the Lord has called us to. He might call some of us to die for the faith. And it's faith in Christ that enables us to do that. It's interesting in, in, in verses uh, 13 to 16 in chapter 11, it says this about this whole section. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Well, wait a minute. They, had their, they received people back from the dead. They had children, all these wonderful things. They overcame kingdoms. And it goes on, it says, And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So this rest that we're looking forward to, even today, is not in this life. It's not in this world. It's to come when Christ returns. It won't be just deliverance from external enemies. It'll be deliverance from the internal enemy of sin and rebellion. And so this rest that they were looking for was not the right rest. Our hearers were looking for a false rest. But let me ask you, where, where is your rest? I can remember at one point during my working career, I thought, I looked so forward to Friday and I realized it wasn't because of the Lord's Day, although I had high regard for the Lord's Day. It was just that I wanted to get out of my work. And I thought, this can't be right <laughs> for a Christian. This can't be right. And that I was, that, that's right. It shouldn't be right. We're looking forward to that eternal rest. We're to set our hope fully upon the grace that's to be revealed to us at Christ's second coming. We're to be looking forward for his return when we will have that rest. But in the meantime, we strive to enter that rest. We, per, we, we follow Christ wherever he leads. I don't have time to go into it now, maybe next week, but I was reading through the end of uh, Luke's gospel this past week. And it's interesting, Luke 20, 23, moving into Luke 24, is an incredible uh, dichotomy. We see all the sufferings of, of Christ and then he's, he dies on the cross, and he, he breathes his last, and the women start to prepare uh, spices. And then the last line of 23 says, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the scriptures. And it was like it jumped off the page. I thought, Christ just purchased their eternal rest. <laughs> that was the last time they had a normal Old Testament Sabbath. That's why we have the, the Sabbath on the first day of the week now, because Christ is, has come and our rest has begun. He has purchased it with his own blood. So we don't wait to the end of the week for that rest, as they kept longing and longing and longing. Now we start the week off because we're in a new eon, we're in a new age. Christ has already purchased our rest for us. And so we start off here as God's people. We come to rest here. And this is to follow us throughout the rest of the week as we look forward to the next Lord's Day or till when that day comes when he comes again. It was a monumental 
thought for me from the scripture. It's like, Christ just purchased their eternal rest. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. They were commended for their last day Sabbath rest. But things changed because Christ had just died on the cross. And so our rest is in Christ. Our rest is in Christ. So we need to know where our rest lies. It lies in Christ and it lies in heaven. Finally, number three, heed the word. Heed the word. Verses 11 to 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We have this incredible picture of what the word is that just pierces all pretense, pierces all darkness, and sees us for where we are. Absolutely. I've had a lot of injuries over the course of my life, some sports-related, some not. I've had x-rays, I've had MRIs, I've had echocardiograms. And the benefit of these things is they can pierce what you can only see on the surface. Unless you have a compound fracture. That's, the, that's an exception. But, but they see things beyond what we see with the eye. And the word of God is of such a nature that it pierces our hearts. It, see through, it sees through our hypo- hypocrisy. And they did not trust the word in the wilderness. This word that was absolutely true. But these hearers here in the letter to the Hebrews, they too were muddled in their thinking. And they were drifting away from the word. It wasn't just the word of the Old Testament, as glorious as it was. They had the word incarnate. They had the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. The coming of the, of the Christ in the first time he came. They had greater light. Jesus makes a point of this. If some of the people in the past had had what, they, what the people in his time had, they wouldn't have been judged so badly. They would have repented, I mean. And so these, these hearers that, that letter to the Hebrews is addressed to, they, they had the light of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they're going backwards. They're going backwards. And yet he brings this before them again. He talks about how, how sharp the word of God is. And he keeps saying this over and over to them in the letter. You've got to pay attention. You've got to pay closer attention. And similarly, let me ask you, what's your relationship with the word? Do you have time to sit before the word and let it judge you? You know, one of the weaknesses, I think, of the Reformed community, I include myself, is that we, we think we've got we to gotta get more and more Reformed things in our head. And that's a great misunderstanding. Because our knowledge of Christ should, should change our lives. It's not how much can you stuff yourself with Reformed theology, as glorious as it is, as true as it is. But it's supposed to be worked out in our lives. Trusting Christ, loving Christ, loving our neighbor, loving the brothers, the sisters in Christ. And so we have to have that time with the word. You know, Jesus... Even as the God-man, he would go off by himself. 
and pray. And we need to have time, even apart from our spouse or our children, where we're before the word and we open our hearts to it. One of the benefits of my having spent so much time in the word is I could see my heart changing. It wasn't me. It was, the, it was just the word by the Spirit humbling me, causing me to see the glory of Christ. It did uncover my sin, but it uncovered a wonderful Savior. A Savior that the writer says is better than Moses. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to angels. Moses was considered faithful in the house of God. But he didn't treat God as holy. And he didn't get to enter the promised land. But we have a wonderful Savior, the Son of God, who, even to his last breath, only wanted to please the Father. That's all he did. He did everything perfectly. Even his last breath. Perfect. Not just works, not just words, not just thoughts, but his affections were always to please the Father. No no variation. I'm sure I'll I'll have a greater appreciation by God's grace as I get older. The sinlessness of Christ, his perfect obedience to the Father, that's the obedience, that's the righteousness that we now have in Christ. And so our writer will keep bringing Christ before his hearer's eyes. He'll keep demonstrating the glories of Christ, the the person of work of Christ. You know, in, in the rest that all these people had in the past, whether it's David or entering the promised land or Solomon or Asa. There was rest from their enemies, but it didn't rest from the main enemy they had, and that was their sin. Only Jesus could deal with that. Only Jesus could take that away. And that's why our rest is in him, because he's taken away, he's taken our sins upon himself. He's paid our penalty. Those who trust in him get new hearts. We get a a new start. We begin to really want to love and serve Christ. And so our writer, as a good pastor, brings Christ back before their eyes. He criticizes them, he corrects them, but he brings Christ before them. And he expounds on the high priesthood of Christ. He expounds on the blood of Christ, that it can cleanse our consciences. So wherever we are in the word of God, we're learning of Christ in some sense. And we're not to harden our hearts, we're to receive it. Our problem is not external problems, really, in the end, it's internal. We can be in difficult situations just like some of those in Hebrews 11. But all we want to do is love Christ and serve him. If we have to serve him with our lives, so be it. That's the grace of God for us. That's what grows in us. It's like, whatever you want, Lord, live or die, it doesn't matter. By your grace, I'm yours. Just like we said in the Heidelberg Heidelberg Catechism. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your your word is penetrating and um, reaches to the depths of our souls. We ask, Father, that we, by your grace, would be hardened to your word less and less, even as your children. That as we come to your word, we wouldn't come to it like it's some other subject that we're going to master. But we ask, Father, instead that you would master us with it. That you would take away our stubbornness, even as your children. That Christ's likeness would be progressing in our souls and not degressing. 
We thank you, Father, that we can ask these things because this is your will. We see it in Christ's high priestly prayer. And so, Father, we ask that you would do these things for his glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.